Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I'm here with my co-host and researcher extraordinaire, Deb. And she's getting ready to have a wonderful Halloween evening with his, her grandchildren. Yeah. And they're all little babies and little kids, so that's always fun. Yes, it's going to be very fun. And hopefully the weather will hold up for everybody out there and it'll have a safe uh, holiday. Um, tonight we're going to, to do the second half of the Wives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence from Pennsylvania because there was nine of them. So we did five last show and we're going to do four this show. And I'm just going to remind everybody who they were and then who we're going to do tonight. So. The signers of the Declaration of Independence, George from Pennsylvania, George Clymer, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Morris, John Morton, George Ross, Benjamin Rush, James Smith, George Taylor, James Wilson. And if we get to it, James Wilson, who was a, um, a really uh, famous lawyer back then, did an essay about what if the if Britain had a legal legal hold on a, on the colonists, and hopefully we'll get to it because it's really interesting. It's really long, so I'm probably not to do the whole thing. But I am going to start with Benjamin and Julia Rush. And do you have anything else to add? No. No. Nope. Okay. Some interesting and, people. As usual. And, yep. And as always, some of them, they have a lot on the women. Some of them, they don't. It's just hit or miss. And uh, like the Franklins, they had a lot on uh, Deborah Franklin. But uh, so most of these women, they only have a little snippet. But still, uh, we always make it work. So this is from womanhistoryblog.com. Julia Stockton was born March 12th, March 2nd, sorry, 1759 at Morverin, the family estate near Princeton, New Jersey. She was the eldest daughter of signer Richard Stockton and poet Annis Boydant Stockton. Jewel received as liberal an education as was open to women of her day, supplemented by her association with the cultivated people whom her father and mother gathered in their home. The daughter of a lawyer and trustee of the College of New Jersey, Julie grew up, grew up in a home where her father's library was reputed to be among the best in the colonies. Okay, now, when they were talking about Richard Stockton, we also are gonna talk about him as well. Her father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence from the New Jersey um, delegation. And she married another one, she married a man who signed the Declaration of Independence for Pennsylvania. So, you know, she was really in this whole mix very heavily between her father and her her brother uh, husband, and this is one of the one of the women that actually was the only one that both family members signed the Declaration of Independence. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really really interesting. Okay, so they're talking about a painting by Charles Winston Pearl of her in 1776. 
around the time of her marriage. The portrait depicts a serene and intelligent woman relaxing while playing her elegant English guitar with her books beside her. So she was a musician as well. And um, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, his wife was also a musician. Both Julia's father, Richard Stockton, and husband, Dr. Benjamin Rush, were members of the Continental Congress and signers of the Declaration of Independence. Benjamin Rush was born on December 24, 1745, to John Rush and Susanna Hall Rush in the township of Byberry, about 14 miles outside of Philadelphia. His father died when he was six, leaving his mother, Susanna, the sole, sole support of the family. She opened a grocery and was so successful that she soon opened another shop selling chinaware. Yes, women owned, they owned property back then. They owned businesses back then. Yes despite of what you've ever been told by anybody. At the age of nine, Benjamin was sent to Donningham Academy in Maryland, which was run by his maternal uncle, the Reverend Samuel Finley. In 1760, he completed the five-year program at the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, now a disgusting place to go to school, earning a Bachelor of Arts degree. Rush then studied medicine under Dr. John Redman in Philadelphia for six years. Deb and I have highlighted um, Benjamin and Julia Rush before when we were just doing them as not as a sign of the Declaration of Independence. Um, Rush then studied medicine under Dr. John Redman in Philadelphia for six years. Redman encouraged Rush to further his studies at the University of Edinburgh where he earned a Doctor of Medicine degree in 1768. Yes, because we're still colonists and British subjects. While in Edinburgh, he helped his friend Richard Stockton convince Dr. John Witherspoon to accept the presidency of the College of New Jersey. We already highlighted all that too, as well. Rush attended lectures in England and in Paris, where he enjoyed the friendship of Benjamin Franklin, who advanced money to pay Rush's expenses. In August 1769, at the age of 24, Rush returned to America, opened a medical practice in Philadelphia, and became the most famous American physician and medical teacher of his generation. He also was appointed professor of chemistry at the College of Philadelphia. Dr. Rush practiced medicine extensively among the poor. Yeah, which, which rich, white, slave-owning, bigoted, horrible people. His practice was successful. His classes at the university were popular. He began to engage in writing that would prove to be of considerable importance to the emerging nation. He also published the first American textbook on chemistry. He's rolling in his grave right now, right, Deb, because of yeah. all the crap that's in the textbooks now? I'm thinking. Yep. In 1773, Rush contributed editorial essays to the papers about the Patriot cause. He was active in the Sons of Liberty in Philadelphia during that time. He suggested, oh, you're going to have to get the uh, article up about her dad. Okay. He suggested the title, Common Sense, to his friend Thomas Paine for a pamphlet that became popular among patriots. This is really funny because he suggested it to his friend, and one of our friends named our radio show, the uncooperative radio show, <laughs> they gave us that name. We didn't get it ourselves. It's like Thomas Paine didn't get common sense by himself. Yeah, our friend gave us that name. Dr. Rush became engaged to Sarah E., but she died of tuberculosis on December 4, 1774, two weeks before the scheduled wedding. 
The following year, he became engaged to Julia Stockton, whose family he knew during his undergraduate days at Princeton. During their engagement year, Rush wrote frequently to Julia, describing his daily activities and professing his love. He wrote, I desire no other happiness than heaven and you. And I have some good excerpts I'm going to be reading later uh, that he wrote about her and also to his, uh, her uh, uh, grand, I think grandson. I have it up. On January 11, 1776, Dr. Benjamin Rush married Julia Stockton, 17-year-old daughter of his good friend Richard Stockton of Princeton. The minister who married them was Dr. John Witherspoon whom he had helped bring to America 10 years earlier. Six months later, all three men would sign the Declaration of Independence. 13 children were born to Julia and Benjamin Rush, and nine reached adulthood. I'm not gonna go into that. In June 1776, Rush was appointed to represent Philadelphia at the Continental Congress and took his seat on July 22, 1776. He was not there on July 4 when the independence was declared, but he proudly signed the Declaration of Independence with other delegates on August 2nd, 1776. That's when it really was signed, ratified, and ready to go, was August 2nd, not July 4th. It still boggles my mind, and I think you know why we, we still celebrate Independence Day on July 4th, because really it wasn't. It was August 2nd. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah but it was... And we. We celebrate the day that they said, okay, let's make it so. I mean, that's what fourth was. The July 2nd, they talked about it, and then they, July 4th, it was a go. And, of course, a lot of people weren't there, and they had to sign it. Um, you know, they, they signed it throughout, and August uh, 22nd was really the, or 2nd was the day that, they uh, really went down. Yeah, everybody signed. It was the day that everybody signed it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rush later wrote in uh, in a letter to John Adams, the pensive and awful silence which pervaded the house when we were called up one after another to the table of the President of Congress to subscribe what was believed by many at that time to be our own death warrant. They, there's nobody in this United States of America that has this hanging over their head for any kind of a political belief that they have. And I want to make that clear, and I will say it over and over again, because our electric cockroaches are nothing but a bunch of whining babies. And actually, Deb's grandchildren don't whine as much as they do. Rush had many long lunches with Jefferson Adams and Franklin and began a lifelong friendship with John and Abigail Adams. When Dr. Benjamin Rush learned of the capture and brutal prison treatment of his father-in-law, Richard Stockton, had received at the hands of the Loyalists and British in 1777, he was incensed. Okay, so we're going to stop there because I want Deb to describe what happened to this man because this is what Every single founding father, founding mother, and their children and relatives were, were thinking was going to happen to them and could happen to them at any moment to, to gain our freedom. Oh, yeah. This is really uh, very startling um, because we always think of these guys just, you know, getting on their horses or getting their boots on and grabbing their muskets and going off and, fighting the war and winning, you know. But after that, um, no, 
Oh, no, no, no. It was quite uh, precarious, especially for um, those who were known as the Sons of Liberty and the ones that were on the Committee of Safety and Correspondence and the ones that signed the Declaration of Independence and showed up to Congress in Philadelphia uh, for sessions. Um, the, the British, uh, George III had a list of ones he wanted very badly, Samuel Adams, um, uh, da, 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 the other, the smuggler there, um, oh, I can't think of his name, Jackson, not Jackson. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. I know him, he's from Massachusetts, John Hancock, there we go, thank you. Um, you know, and, and uh, everybody else. Paul Revere, and uh, on down the line. So now this this being in uh, New Jersey, um, now he was one that we and we talked about it when we talked we talked about him when we talked about the New Jersey uh, signers and their wives. So, anyways, this tells a, goes into a little more in depth, um, and this is the uh, the Institute on the Constitution. Um, TheAmericanView.com, and it's uh, uh, about Richard Stockton, Stockton and what he went through because he signed the Declaration of Independence. Richard Stockton was a charming young patrician who sacrificed all that he had for liberty. He signed the Declaration of Independence and within a few months was in prison while moving his family to safety. The British tortured Stockton and treated him with extreme brutality because he had signed the document. As an aristocrat, Stockton had much to lose, his position, his estate, his fortune, his family, and his life. The path to liberty cost him all but his family. Because of his ill treatment, Stockton died at the young age of 51. Now, he was born on October 1st, 1730, near Princeton, New Jersey, to a prominent aristocratic family which was highly respected in the colonies and in England. The Stockton, Stockton family were descendants of Sir John Stockton, who was the Lord Mayor of London in 1470. Stockton's father gave money and land to establish the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton University, in 1752. So you can see, I mean, he's, he's, this family was, you know, one of the top people of the creme de la creme in both England and the colonies. And they were very, very much, um, you know, they, they, they believed in England as the mother country until they stopped because of the nonsense. And he was, uh, he received a prestigious education as a young boy from the reputable Reverend Dr. Samuel Finley at Nottingham Academy in Maryland. And Finley, a Presbyterian minister and vice president of Princeton University, established the academy as the first boarding school in the American colonies in 1744. Stockton attended the College of New Jersey and graduated in 1748. And after graduating, he applied and was accepted to the to study law under the tutelage of David Ogden, the most distinguished lawyer in New Jersey. And in 1754. He was admitted to the bar and quickly rose to high acclaim in the, in the colony. In uh, 1757, he married 
Annis Boutinot, a poet who lived by Benjamin Franklin and attended Franklin's Academy. Annis, I think it's Annis, was the sister of Elias Boutinot, who married Stockton's sister. Stockton and Annis had six children, two sons and four daughters, two of which were twins. His daughter, Julia, married Dr. Benjamin Rush from Pennsylvania. Can you imagine the dinner conversation? <laughs> These are such intelligent people. I mean, oh, my God, what they would have talked about, you know, in the drawing rooms and in the, in the, uh, the where they went to, you know, smoke their pipes and have their brandy um, as the women would go off themselves and the men would go off themselves after dinner. But anyway, it, it was just amazing to me the, the um, and how, how highly they thought of education. Unfortunately, they had an education instead of a indoctrination gap um, as we have now in our illustrious institutions of higher learning. But anyway, back to ben, or, uh, Richard. Both of his sons were successful. Richard became an eminent lawyer, senator, and prominent Federalist leader, and Robert was a Navy Commodore in the War of 1812. Stockton established a successful law of practice, first in Princeton in 1754, and opened a second one in Newark. He was considered to be one of the most gifted lawyers in all the colonies. Stockton was not fond of politics and instead chose to serve Princeton as a trustee, and in 1763, he received the degree of sergeant at law, the highest degree of law available. And Stockton gave up his successful law practice in 1766 to travel to England, Scotland, and Ireland. While in Scotland, he used his personal reputation and social standing to persuade the Reverend John Witherspoon to accept the position of president of Princeton. Witherspoon's appointment was significant to the success and future of higher education in the colonies. And he's another one, if you haven't um, read about... Uh, Jonathan Witherspoon, you, you should. While in England, Stockton gained a lot of attention and was sprouted by many as the cleverest man yet from America. He was invited to attend the Queen's birthday ball and was presented to King George III, a great honor for a colonist. Stockton also had the opportunity to give a speech to the king, and in his remarks, he boldly acknowledged the repeal of the Stamp Act. The king was impressed by Stockton, and Stockton received his personal coat of arms and motto, Omnia Deo Pendent, all depends on God. He had a fearless character, and when attacked in an attempted robbery, Stockton ably fought his assailants, and Providence delayed his baggage on his return voyage to America in 1766, which caused him to miss the boat. The boat sank in a violent storm with no survivors. Hey, Deb? Yeah? It's amazing how it's just showing he was loyal to the king and he went in front of the king and what the British ended up doing to him. Yes, I know. That's, that's the, the thing. And this really does show how um, precarious and harsh the war really was because these were... Well, you know, citizens of England, to a certain degree. I mean, England had a, well, if you've read English history, you know that they, they considered anyone not of 
I'm going to say um, proper England, um, like the Irish, Scots, the Welsh, they considered them less than, which is why when you want to talk about slavery and Native Americans here in America, you must look towards Britain, England, uh, because that was their their worldview. The, the sun rose and, sh- and set over England and all her territories. And anyone who was not British-born or or one of the, even, you know, even the upper crust, um, they looked down on and uh, considered them you know, almost subhuman. Some of them they did, like the, the slaves and the, the Irish, actually. So I've been listening to a lot of tapes on um, or uh, YouTube videos on English history, seeing as my background, though it's Welsh and Irish. Um, and and what they would call the people is just freaking amazing to me. I mean, they they were so derogatory. So. That that I'm only saying because they have this this mentality, this worldview, and these people were part of it. Except, you know, then the Enlightenment came and touched a lot of people's hearts and, and minds and, and souls, and and they didn't want to, you know, go down that dark road anymore. So, you know, just to give you a little context. Um, okay, now. In 1768, Stockton was selected as a member of the Executive Council and was later promoted to Justice of the Supreme Bench in 1774. Stockton did did not possess a political nature and was reluctant to join the Patriots' cause. At first, he used his connections for reconciliation between the colonies and Britain proposing colonial self-government. When these attempts failed, he became active in the cause for independence through organizing the opposition to the crown. B.J. Lossing wrote, having been honored by the personal regard of the king and possessing uh, an ample fortune, it would have seemed natural for him to remain loyal. But like Lewis Morris, his principles could not be governed by self-interest and he espoused the cause of the patriots. His decision to follow liberty was critical was ensuring that New Jersey voted for independence with the other colonies. In 1776, he was selected to represent New Jersey as a delegate to the Continental Congress. And he he was not very active in the preliminary debates, but soon used his influential position to voice his desire for independence in a short speech from the floor. And he was the first delegate from New Jersey to sign the Declaration of Independence. And she grew up with this man. I mean, that, how wonderful. Can you, oh, like I said, can you imagine the conversation at home? He was returned to Congress in September. Uh, Deb, 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 hold on a minute. The yeah. other thing that it's good to bring up is, could you imagine Julia? I mean, not only is, even if she didn't marry Brendan Rush, she would be, uh, you know, in danger because of her dad. She's like double well, jeopardy. Yeah, that's why you know. As soon as he, as soon as he um, started to voice on the floor, you know, for um, 
independence, he, you know, he, he was hooked. That was it. His, he and his family now were traitors to the king. Yep. She was a double traitor. I mean, yeah. she must, and, and yeah. think about it, how valuable she would be. She's oh. a Briton. They got a hold of her. I know. I know. Put her in prison, take her hostage. You know, what, what leverage they would have. Yep. I mean, she was in, in a lot of very, very much peril. And, again, not only to leverage for her husband and her father, um, all the other people that knew their families. Yeah. You know, not everyone's going to be loyal under pressure, right? Right. Yeah, some do tell the pirates where the, the, the pirates where the treasure is buried, you know, because yep. they inflict some pretty barbaric tortures. I mean, Jesus. And that's what makes me laugh about what people think torture is today. Apparently they never um, looked at past history of man's inhumanity to man. You know, and the Uh, other thing, too, is that they captured him, but they didn't do anything about, you know, like asking them for stuff or, you know, trying to to try to influence Julian as why and his her husband because of her father's capture. I mean that goes both ways. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't succumb to that. No. But the men would have succumbed to the woman being captured. Mm. And that's why it's so important to be very, very careful about having our daughters in combat roles because men by their very nature, are protective of women. Yep. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of soldiers about that, male soldiers, and they, you know, they would be torn because if their male colleague, your buddy, battle buddy was um, injured, but someone was gunning for the woman, they would be so torn. And and they don't need to be torn when they're no. they're doing that. So yeah, a lot don't. of them have, a lot of them have a lot of respect for the women who have been in firefights. Um, I've talked to some who you know the truck drivers that were in Afghanistan and Iraq and they came under fire and they picked up a gun and they you know took, took their place. But it's still it's still hard for the men who. Uh, I mean, they get distracted because they're watching the woman, you know. It's, it's I a, do. It's a hard thing for them, yes. Yep, it is. Um, it is. Okay. okay. Where was Good I? Good point. Now. Good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so now he signed the Declaration of Independence, and uh, he was, uh, he was um, let's see, I'm trying to find my paragraph. Oh, he was um, a candidate for New Jersey governor under his new constitution, um, but he lost by one vote. Stockton was then selected to the New New Jersey Chief Justice but declined the position to serve his new country in Congress. He was selected to inspect the Northern Army and make recommendations to Congress. Stockton reported on all aspects of the Army's conditions, provisions, barracks, regulations, medical care, and he traveled to Albany, Saratoga, Ticonderoga, and many other small military facilities. Stockton's political service 
was soon overtaken by military events. He rushed back to New Jersey to save his family when news of the British invasion reached him. He quickly moved his family away from Princeton, but he was betrayed by a loyalist neighbor and captured by the British in November 1776. He was jailed at Perth Amboy, then moved to the notorious prisons in New York, which we have talked about, and they weren't very nice. The conditions of the British prisoner of war camps were deplorable and resulted in higher death tolls for the patriots than on the battlefield. The soldiers were exposed to harsh winter temperatures and received only starvation rations, which resulted in disease. Stockton's treatment was unusually harsh and brutal as a signer of the Declaration of Independence. This barbaric torture severely impacted his health for the short remainder of his life. He never fully recovered, either physically or emotionally, from the brutal British detention. His home was used by General Cornwallis as an army headquarters. Oh, that must have been salt in the wound. All of his belongings and property were pillaged or destroyed. His library was one of the finest in the colonies, and it was burned by the British. That in itself, right there shows you that uh, culture be damned. Upon learning of the cruel treatment of Stockton, Congress passed a resolution requiring him to his status. George Washington intervened on his behalf and forced an exchange of prisoners, and after five long weeks of enduring torturous conditions, Stockton was released with a promise not to aid in the rebellion. Stockton lost his home, health, and fortune, and his dire financial condition forced him to accept the temporary aid of friends. He soon reopened his law practice and took on students to support his family. Not long after resuming his career as an attorney, he developed lip cancer, which spread to his throat. And on February 28, 1781, he died at, uh, Stockton died at the young age of 51. Stockton was a patrician who lost his wealth in the war. He was the only signer to be put in irons in prison, starved, and tortured. Stockton paid the supreme price for placing his signature on the Declaration and pledging his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Like many of the founders, he believed that service was just not an honor but a duty. And like the example of Jesus, they were duty-bound to make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, yeah, so this is what... Everybody, I mean, everybody would know about this, which is why a lot of the the people traveled. You know, the men men didn't stay in one place too long, and they moved their families to um, areas that were not in the British path. And like, but what he did when he found that they were headed to New Jersey, he he went there to get his family out because he knew, you know, he had a target. They all had targets on their back. Yeah, and I'm glad we we brought that up because that is an excellent um, representation of this could happen to anyone. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Okay, so I am going to get back to um, the rushes. So, uh, let's see, where was I? Um, I went a little bit too far. 
Okay, there he went there. I did all that about uh, marrying Julia, and then I have to go all the way back. Okay, so when he found out about his brutal treatment of his father-in-law, he wrote to Richard Henry Lee, every particle of my blood is electrified with revenge, and if justice cannot be done him in any other way, I declare I will, in defiance of the authority of Congress, drive the first rascally Tory I meet 100 miles barefooted through the first deep snow that falls in our country. In April 1777, Rush was appointed by Congress to the post of Surgeon General of the Middle Department of the Continental Army, which included the hospitals between the Hudson and Potomac Rivers. Rush immediately went to work and authored Directions for Preserving the Health of Soldiers, which the War Department ordered, and we should go back to be calling it the War Department, ordered, printed as a pamphlet. This code of military hygiene was to serve our armies as late as the Civil War. Julia Stockton Rush was, along with Sarah Franklin Bach and other prominent women, a member of the Ladies' Association, the leading fundraiser during the Revolutionary War. Yes, um, we actually reported on this, and yes, women were extremely important during the Revolutionary War, no matter what their roles were. Esther de Barrett reed we actually highlighted her too, established the organization in Philadelphia after General George Washington relayed information to Congress about the shortage of supplies and rations among the Continental soldiers. The women of Philadelphia sewed 2,200 linen shirts and personalized each one with the name of the woman who made it, meaning they took their own linens to make these shirts, asked for donations for linens, because we had gotten into this um, in depth when we did Esther. Um, they would, and, and we've talked about this before too, they would take their pewter, melt it down, their silver, whatever they could do, they would do, believe it or not, to, for this to help the soldiers. And even, and even natives, even Indian women helped, uh, especially the one at uh, Valley Forge during the winter. And she helped feed them, get them through the winter. So, you know, we don't need any of these pink hats, ladies. We just need to be who we are, strong women. As the war continued and army forces under General Washington suffered a series of defeats, Rush secretly campaigned for a removal of Washington as commander of the Continental Army as part of the secretive Conway Cabal, which we did on this show, and I also did it on the Uncooperative Radio Show. He went so far as to write a supposedly anonymous letter to then-Governor Patrick Henry of Virginia. Rush was caught in the act and confronted by Washington, at which point he bowed out of any activities related to the war. They, later on, they, they, uh, they, moved, they uh, made up. Um, so now it's going to go into the future, and I don't want to go into the future. Dr. Benjamin Rush died suddenly on April 19, 1813, after a brief illness. He was buried in the graveyard of Christ Church in Philadelphia, the same church whose pastor had christened him 57 years earlier. On learning of his death, Jefferson wrote to Adams, another of our friends of 76 is gone, my dear sir, another of the co-signers of the independence of our country. This is going to make me cry. <laughs> and a better man than Rush could not have blessed us. More benevolent, more learned, a finer genius, or more honest. Adams, grief-stricken, wrote in reply, I know of no character, living or dead, who has done more real good in America. 
Russia's biographies and autobiography portray him as a strong-willed, opinionated man, but with kindly and philanthropic ways, a man of integrity who was devoted to his family. Julia Stockton Rush died at their country home, Sydenham, on July 7, 1848, at the age of 89, and was buried with her husband in Christ Church Burial Ground in Philadelphia. Tribute to Julia Stockton Rush. In his memoirs, Dr. Rush paid this tribute to his wife. Let me here bear testimony to the worth of this excellent woman. She fulfilled her every duty as a wife, mother, and mistress with fidelity and integrity. To me, she was always a sincere and honest friend that I yielded to her advice upon many occasions. I should have known less distress from various causes in my journey through life. May God reward and bless her with an easy and peaceful old age if she should survive me and after death confer upon her immediate eternal happiness. A footnote in Russia's autobiography says, she raised her family in a time of war, pestilence, and great economic stress. She had little time for anything but the care of her family. It is evident that she was a sensible, calm woman upon whom I depended for solace and stabilizing advice. The year before his death, Rush wrote a poem to Julia that ended, and when the stream of time shall end and the last trump of my grave shall rend, who shall with me to heaven ascend, my Julia? Julia's great-grandson wrote, I am afraid our forebearers did not keep with accuracy the deeds of noble women in the days that truly tried the souls of both men and women. I spent last evening going over a mass of data, including a copy of the commonplace book or diary of my great-grandfather, Benjamin Rush. She is spoken of everywhere as a devoted wife and mother and of her urging her husband to take more care of himself during the terrible yellow fever scourge of 1793. In Philadelphia, when much, uh, when much against her wishes, she remained out of town with her children yet by daily letters encouraged Dr. Rush in his great work for humanity. And that was the Russian. Yeah. Okay, so, um, you are going to highlight the Smiths. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to close some of these windows so I don't crash. Yeah, me too. Okay, let's see. All right, hold on. I'm let me. Okay. Eleanor Armour Smith is uh, married to James Smith of Pennsylvania. And this is from the Cause of Liberty blog, um, blogspot.com, causeofliberty.blogspot.com. And uh, this is. Okay. Eleanor Armour Smith married James Smith, signer of the Declaration of Independence, in 1745 or 1746. She was a young woman of many accomplishments and good family connection when she married the young land surveyor and lawyer who had recently moved from Chippenburg. James was the first attorney to practice law in York and led the Bar Association until after the Revolution. James was born in Ireland and came to America as a child with his father. He lived along the Susquehanna River 
was educated in Philadelphia and studied law with an older brother in Lancaster. And he started practicing law in Chippenburg, but moved to York several years later in order that his family might have the advantages of a larger and more thickly settled community. James and Eleanor were parents of five children, three sons and two daughters. And uh, the important date is so often happens uh, with, you know, researching these people. Their, uh, the important dates in the lives of their family, such as their date of marriage and birthdays, the family members are all uncertain. James would never tell anyone his age. He had wit and humor and enjoyed telling stories and happy companionship. Long before the beginning of the Revolutionary War, James had strong views about the encroachment of the British ministry on the rights of the colonies, and he served on the Provincial Committee of Safety. He also served in the Continental Congress from 75 until 78. Letters from Smith to Eleanor show that he had confidence in her ability to take care of their home affairs and an air of affectionate comradeship. James died in 1806, and his tombstone says that he was 93 years old. He and Eleanor are both buried in York. Um, they don't say when, when she died. There wasn't much to find on, on her, unfortunately. Uh, let's see, we'll go over to the descendants, the Society of the Descendants of the Signers. Um, and uh, let's see, he was 41 years of age when he married Eleanor Armour, who was daughter of John Armour in Newcastle, Delaware in 1750. So they apparently know more. Of course, that the cause of liberty... Um, article was taken from the the uh, book that was written in 1912, so maybe they have found more papers. It's, it's uh, why, um, why, no, 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 that's not the, the one from 19, yeah, it is, it was republished by the wall builders, the wives of the signers, the women behind the Declaration of Independence, which is hard to get, so, well, it's not hard to get, it's just expensive. For a good copy. And anyway, getting back to James Smith now. Nova is a. If you want to look up, see if you know uh, you're related to any of these people, you can. The Society of the Descendants of the Signers of the uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, they uh, you can contact them if you think you are. Anyway, he was 41 when he married Eleanor. Um. And they had five children before she died. Ah, on July 13, 1818. They must have found some records between that book and now. Um, of these five children, only one, Mary Smith, the second child, survived into adulthood, married and had issue. All four of the other children died unmarried or without issue. Um, let's see. It, it, I talked about being a researcher into genealogy. Okay. Oh, God, and then it gets into all this. This is, that's about the kids. We don't really care about the kids. You can look up about the kids. Um, and he was a surveyor. Uh, and he was, um, began an iron foundry. But the business did not prosper, not because there was no market for iron. There certainly was, but he had placed the enterprise in the hands of two partners who were, as Smith reported, 
one of who was a knave and the other a fool. So James Smith lost a good bit of money on his venture. Um, he was quite concerned about the widening risk between the colonists and the mother country by the early 1770s. And he attended a provincial assembly in 1774 where he offered a paper he had written um, entitled Essay on the Constitutional Power of Great Britain over the Colonies in the Americas. In that paper, Smith recommends that the colonies boycott all British goods, feeling that this method of hurting the British merchants in their pockets will force the parliament to back away from one of their oppressive laws that were stifling American trade. Such a move is exactly what transpires as the First Continental Congress adjourned in Philadelphia in the fall of 1774. In 74, he organized a volunteer company of militia in York County, Pennsylvania. And they're quite proud of, of him um, in York. Uh, you can, if you go to York, Pennsylvania, you'll see a lot of things relating to him. But he was, uh, let's see, yes, as he organized a volunteer company of militia, uh, these volunteers quickly elected Smith as captain with increasing pressure by the British upon American trade and freedom. This militia company soon grew to battalion size, and Smith, who was chosen as commander, deferred to a younger man as he himself was now by 55 years of age. Smith is elected a delegate to the state convention in Philadelphia in January 1775, and he concurred in the spirited declaration of that convention that if the British administration should determine by force to effect a submission to the late arbitrary acts of the British Parliament, in such a situation, we hold it our indispensable duty to resist such force and at every hazard to defend the rights and liberties of America. Strong words are not exactly the language every one of the colonies would choose, many of whom at this time hoped for some form of accommodation with the mother country. This is especially true for the state of Pennsylvania, where many of the delegates, as well as the citizenry, are Quakers, or at least leaning in the direction of peace, not conflict. While peace is an admirable goal, there are occasions in the affairs of men when securing liberty and freedom requires a firmer stand and even a cause. James Smith understood this concept of the price of freedom and was quite willing to urge other persons to that same view. And he was not alone. Persons such as John Adams and his cousin Samuel of Massachusetts, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Louis Morris and William Floyd of New York, Benjamin Rush and Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry of Virginia, Thomas Hayward and Arthur Middleton of South Carolina among the number. Smith in his military capacity causing two regiments of Pennsylvania militia to repair to the flying camp set up near Perth Amboy, New Jersey to deter possible British incursions in early 1776. While still serving in the State Assembly in 1775, Smith made a name for himself as a supporter of the causes of American freedom which more and more appeared to be possible only by separation. Thomas Paine's articles in Common Sense began to turn minds more and more towards the idea of independency. The Second Continental Congress had been meeting in Philadelphia since 10 May 1775 and adopted the New England Army in June, appointing George Washington as commander and naming other general officers. Okay, and then it goes into... Uh, you know, the battles that have started, you know, Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill, 
excuse me, and then they brought up um, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia proposed the resolution about independence, and uh, this allowed the pro-independent minded to convince the fence-sitters of the futility of accommodation or of the Pennsylvania Assembly to choose other delegates, which this approach worked out very well. Numbers of heretofore reluctant delegates began to line up behind the independency program, and Pennsylvania elected new delegates. Among these new delegates to the Continental Congress was James Smith. Um, it was the ta- tabled resolution of Richard Henry Lee was brought up again to Congress on uh, July 1st and approved the next day. Then the Congress spent most of the next two days discussing the details and the language earlier prepared by a five-man committee. And then finally, on July 4th, the delegates agreed upon the language in the Declaration of Independence. And uh, you can see, of course, the signatures of all 56 signers, John Hancock being the largest. Okay, so then he went on um, a, 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 I can't, oh, my son, I'm so sorry, accompanied by Captain Francis Wade and Dr. Young rode off to New York on the evening of um, 1776, uh, uh, July 6th. 1776, I believe it. They don't have the, the month here, but I would imagine it was, the, it was July. With a printed broadside copy of the Declaration to read to the public in the town square, and he continued to serve in Congress and in his state assembly through 78. And he was elected a brigadier general of the state of militia in 81. And then he you know, resumed his practice of law in New York as the uh, war was ended in Kept at it until he was, until 1800 when he retired at age 81. He died July 11, 1806. So and that was her husband. Now you can imagine this woman. I, and it doesn't say when the children died. It's really sad. Let's see. Um, yeah, they don't. Uh, well, one was, yeah, they were, let's see, Elizabeth, oh, I could go into all that, but um, only two of the children married, but they one didn't have any children. So, uh, they, you know, they, some of the children died young and others died in young adulthood. All this, well, you know, this was all going on because, Let's see. Uh, uh, I am not even sure that was the right myth. I'm sorry. This is all about the uh, genealogy, which confuses me terribly when you get into the who married who and who had children and everything. So excuse me while I am a little confused by this paragraph. But anyway, um, he, uh, when did it say, Eleanor? Okay, so they, they were quite, quite old. Yeah, here it is, the five children. I was looking at the wrong paragraph. I'm having one of my fibrofog days, so do, do be patient with me. Um, yeah, she was born in 17, he died in 1760, so, 
Oh, no, that's when they married. 1818. She, so she lived to see through all this, but that's been over. And anyways, he wrote the, uh, oh, gosh. The, I'm not doing well tonight. Can I Are you not re- are you seeing it or not seeing it? I I I got it now. I wanted to get the the correct title of it and I didn't have it in my email. Considerations on the nature and extent of the legislation. Oh, that's Wilson. Oh god, right. I'm so confused. Yeah, that's Wilson. That's Wilson. I, oh. Oh, yeah, there's been so many of them. At least I have them in the right order. Okay, that's Wilson. We don't want to go there. We're still on Smith. Right. There wasn't much about her, unfortunately. I, she apparently just stayed at home and took care of everything while he was uh, doing his delegation thing. Yep. Okay, well, that's the Smith. Okay. All right, so now we're going, going to go on to the Taylors. Um, I just have to make sure, yep, Taylors. Make sure I have my ducks in a row. Okay. And this is also, this is from DSD1776.com. George Taylor's birth date is uncertain, but most writers believe he was born in 1716 in Northern Ireland, the son of Reverend Taylor. Little is known of George's growing up years, but based on the reading and writing skills he brought with him to the colonies, it seems likely that he had received a good basic education in Ireland. And again, there's not that much on her as well. Taylor emigrated to the colonies as an indentured servant in 1736. He was 20, with his passage paid for by Samuel Savage Jr., an iron master at Coventry Forge near Philadelphia. I need to get up the um, iron uh, work article too yeah now now two things with this we have talked about most people came to the colonies as indentured servants and they were white it wasn't until the dutch started bringing over slaves from uh africa that we got the african slaves they most of the, the the hard labor was done by indentured servants and the first ones that were brought over here were irish so get over your skin color okay because there's a lot more slaves out there oh um Israelites, Jews come to mind. They were chattel slaves for 400 years, way, way before the blacks. And we've done this many times on this show. But I have to bring it over and over again because of the Black Lives Matter nonsense. Um, All lives matter, number one. And number two, you weren't slaves or treated as badly as the Israelites were. And they were way before you. Taylor would later be, oh, and the other thing is that Muslims enslaved the blacks. Oh, 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 and the first black slave owner was black. So can I, go, I can just keep going on, right, Deb? Yeah, and in, in the, the, the peaceful Native Americans took slaves. That's what they, yeah. uh, they, they, and they also took the white settlers and made them slaves. Yep. You really need to know your history before you open yep. your mouth. 
I know. There's a lot. There was a lot of flavory going on all it, over the place. And, it was and it still is. It, it was just the way it was. This is what people did. Just like, you know, um, what's it called? The the, the punishment for um, heresy and treason, uh, quartering, um, what, what, basically the horrible things that they used to do to people to punish them. And what was that called? Something in quartering, where they, they basically opened you up, kept you alive until... Um, you know, and, and, and basically showed you your innards while you were laying there, tied up, and then they put four horses, you know, one, one your your arms and your legs to four horses, and they made the horses run in all opposite directions. So, yeah, um, things were a bit nasty. In fact, they still are in the Middle East. And so, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the fact that there's still slavery going on today is quite disturbing. So everyone needs to get over themselves and put their big pants, big boy pants on because you are not a slave anywhere in hardly any country except the Middle East. And, yes, slavery is still going on. That should disturb. Oh, you think they not would be fighting for that? They would be fighting against these, I mean, like this 200, how many is 200? Damn near 300 girls that were taken by the, uh, oh, the, the ones that begin with a, a B, uh, Boko Haram, mm-hmm. uh, Muslims, they were taken and, and, and slaves, sex slaves, you know, they were raped and, oh, it's just horrible what is going on today. So when you sit there and talk about slavery that's been over for over 100 years and civil rights, which were coming, what, 60 years now? Yeah, 50, 40, 50, 60, going on 60 years. And and there are still um, slaves being taken, young girls, young women, young boys, young men, made into slaves, sold to the highest bidder. Thank you very much. So. I eat this one of my passions. I just, just thinking of little children taken to be sex slaves, both sexes. I... Anyways, go on. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Tell them how you really feel. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, Taylor would later become one of the three signers of the Declaration who were born in Ireland, and others, the others being James Smith and Matthew Thornton. And uh, at first, George Taylor was employed by Iron Master Samuel Nutt as a filler, shoveling coal into the furnace when it collapsed. Recognizing Taylor's other skills, Nutt soon appointed him to his counting room as a clerk at Coventry Forge. Nutt died soon after in 1737 and, in accordance with his will, left his iron and furnace properties to Samuel Savage Jr. and Savage's mother, Anna Rudder Savage Nutt. Also in accordance with the instructions in Nutt's will, his surviving wife, Anna Nutt, and her sons from her first marriage constructed Warwick Furnace in 1738, 
1739 invoice, George Taylor signed himself as clerk, comma, and nut and company, comma, Warwick Furnace. Samuel Sa Savage Jr. died in 1741. A year later, in 1742, George Taylor married his widow, Anne Sa Taylor Savage. Her maiden name had also been Taylor. At this point, Taylor took over the management of Warwick Furnace, and the business grew and prospered over the next few years. Now, uh, Deb is going to highlight this and uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, the, the, uh, over at the Dunham uh, Historical Society, or Durham, I'm sorry, Durham, they have the history of the Durham Furnace and Iron Works, and, and it's quite a history. This is in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Yay, I used to live in Bucks County. Very lovely place. But that was many years ago, so I don't know how lovely it is now. It's probably still very lovely. But anyways, they uh, they have this wonderful article up about the uh, Durham Furnace and Ironworks. In the late 1600s, William Penn, the proprietor of Pennsylvania, granted important powers to the Free Society of Traders, a group of businessmen based in London, England. They were granted tracts of land in Bucks County near present-day Doylestown, Warwick, New Britain, Hilltown, and Durham. Durham was laid off for the society in the township that now bears its name and was later sold to the Furnace Company in 1727. The society was organized as a great trading and manufacturing corporation. The treasurer of the society, James Claypool, wrote in 1682, we are to send out 100 servants to build houses to plant and improve land and for cattle and to set up a glass house for bottles, drinking glass and window glass, to supply the islands and continent of America as we hope to have wine and oil, some corn, hemp for portage, and for iron and lead and other minerals. There is no doubt that the society knew of the iron ore in the hills surrounding Durham. The Indians had long before advised the Europeans that they were mining lead in the hills and using that material for trade with other tribes and in the implementation of utensils. Whether or not the society was successful in mining the ore and its melting, the record is silent, but may have taken place on the modest scale, but with primitive and ineffective smelting furnaces. There was no record of a furnace in Durham when the stock company was formed in 1727. The recorded history of the furnace dates from the year 1727 when a stock company was formed on March 4th. James Logan, William Penn's original secretary, having come to Pennsylvania in 1699, became the proprietor's chief American business representative and a very successful businessman. His share of the stock issued by the new company was 25% of the total investment initially made. And then I go into the other uh, investors. It doesn't really matter. The first furnace was put in operation in 1727 in an area about one and a half miles up from the river, precisely where the present brick mill now stands, built in 1820, on the ruins of the furnace in the Durham Billy Center. The water power of the creek that flowed past the furnace was used to operate a number of forges and in working at huge bellows that produced the blast. The area at that time was surrounded by trees and industry quickly started up associated with the making of charcoal. The charcoal burners were work ever moved further away from the furnace as forests were leveled for the purpose of making charcoal for the voracious Durham furnace. Lime kiln pits are still in existence in Durham, and the erectors of same long gone, as is the industry associated with their use in the art of charcoal making. 
The furnace exported three tons of pig iron, according to James Logan's records, to England in 1728 as a sample, but at the same time, Russian iron was being shipped to England at a very low cost. The Americans could not meet the competition's cost. Labor was costly, and the expense of shipping the product down the Delaware River to Philadelphia was great. Slaves were used as a furnace from 1727 through the close of the century, but not extensively. And some there that some that worked there quickly made their escape to the British in New York. Important product was produced at the furnace. A stove similar to the famous Franklin stove was produced in Durham in quantity. The Adam and Eve stove was manufactured in 1741 and onwards. George Taylor, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, had an elaborate model of the Adam and Eve stove made with the inscription Durham Furnace, 1774, the year in which he came into control of the furnace for the second time. The furnace also produced shot and shell for the armies of George Washington during the War of Independence. The original Furnace Corporation, created in 1727 and intended to continue 50 years, was dissolved by mutual consent before the expiration of that period. The furnace, its plot of ground, and all its buildings were transferred to Joseph Galloway and his wife, Grace, in 1773. Mr. Galloway became the first individual proprietor of the Durham Furnace, and when he aligned himself with the Crown and joined the British at New York, his estates were declared forfeited through the Commonwealth, and Richard Blackhouse became its owner for a short period of time. However, the courts later concluded that Grace Galloway had succeeded to ownership, and thus the properties were not subject to confiscation, despite the fact that Joseph Galloway had joined the British cause, departed the colonies, and was thus accused of high treason. And we have done we have done a show on Grace Galloway. She also was a printer of newspapers, which she took over when Joseph went away. <laughs> During the period of the Galloway Air ownership, the operation of the furnace was entrusted to lefties or superintendents. James Morgan, ironmaster, was one of these. His, then, his son, Daniel Morgan, was born in Durham, worked with his father at the furnace, and eventually became the famous General Daniel Morgan in the Revolutionary War and founder of the brigade known as Morgan's Riflemen. George Taylor, signer of the Declaration of Independence, originally indentured to one of the furnaces, furnace lessees, Mr. Savage, when he first arrived in the colonies, worked his way up from pillar to clerk and ultimately as a member of the firm. Upon the death of his employer, he married the widow of the owner, became the sole lessee of the work, and his house still stands just outside the village center of Durham. Uh, the iron ore found in the hills of Durham was not of first-class quality, and the location of the furnace vis-a-vis -vis higher quality ore and good transportation led to its demise, and thus ceased operation in 1791. Immense piles of bombshells were removed from the premises in 1808. Deserted buildings were allowed to decay. They had provided jobs for several generations of furnace workers, miners in the Durham Hills, its various forges and transportation, as well as other support services. Blacksmiths, boatmen, food suppliers, etc., all gone, not needed anymore. And then the grist mill was built on the furnace in 1820. Um, the furnace business was not yet over in Durham, and two new furnaces were built in the 1800s. But you can see just from that how one company, and, and this, you know, this, this gets this gets my goat when 
when certain people go, you didn't build that, the owners of companies. Um, look what this, this, this company, uh, this furnace, how, how it spread throughout the community. I mean, there were furnace workers, miners, uh, forge workers, transportation people, uh, blacksmiths, boatmen, food suppliers, etc. All from one company. So, I, you know, socialism is a wonderful idea on paper or not, and it doesn't do it any better when you put it to test. It always fails. Capitalism is dedicated. Free market, laissez-faire. That's just a wonderful example to me of, you know, why America was so prosperous so quickly. And that is the Durham Furnace History. Well, and that's why I stopped calling uh, on capitalism. No. (laughs) We don't need capitalism. It was actually a Bolshevik term to disparage free trade. And that's what we need is free trade. Now, I'm sorry, there is no such thing as free, I mean, free, um, what you just said, markets, free markets. Yeah, laissez-faire, hands off. Yep. Okay, so, uh, okay, so it prospered over the next few years. Ann Taylor's grandfather, John Taylor, came to Pennsylvania from Wiltshire, England, in 1684 and became a surveyor. Um, I scrolled too far. (laughs) My mouse. Uh, Wow. Okay. I really scrolled down far. Oh, I know it's not hard to do. Yeah. Well, I was using my internal mouse instead of my external. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So he came to Pennsylvania, England. This is uh, George Taylor's wife's um, grandfather. Um, and became a surveyor general of Chester County, which then accounted for about one-third of the colony. Later, her father, Isaac Taylor, served as Chester's deputy surveyor general. Anne's family belonged to the Society of Friends, but she was disowned as a Quaker in 1733 for her marriage outside the circle to Samuel Savage, Jr., as the first known example of his public service, Taylor was appointed a captain of Chester County Associators in 1747, a militia group formed by Benjamin Franklin to provide security against frontier violence. And we've talked about the frontier. In 1752, when his stepson, Samuel Savage III, came of age, Taylor stepped down from the management of Warwick Furnace, turning the furnace over to Samuel III in accordance with the will of Samuel's father. While Anne gave up control of the furnace to her son, she kept a life right to, to, to kept, but kept a life right to two farms, and the Taylor stayed Chester County for a few more years. Anne and George Taylor had two children: um, a son, James, who was born at Warwick Furnace in 1746, and Anne, a daughter who died in childhood. About 1753, Taylor and a partner, Samuel Flower, leased the Durham Ironworks for five years with an option to lease it for an additional five years. 
Taylor's moved to Durham and lived in the mansion house on the property. During this period, the furnace produced cannon shots for the provincial Pennsylvania government for the French and Indian War. Again, these are also going to be older uh, people like the Franklins when we get into the Revolutionary War. Taylor became active in public affairs and was commissioned as a Justice of the Peace in 1757 and again in 1761 and 63. He was also involved with the Red Hill Presbyterian Church, serving as a trustee in 1765 land transfer for the congregation's burial ground known as Gallows Hill Cemetery. While in Durham, he bought a small stone house in eastern Pennsylvania at a sheriff's sale, that means it was confiscated, on December 23, 1761. <clears throat> the house was located at the northeast corner of what is now Northampton and Second Streets. And just as an aside, they had how much he bought it for, and it was, it's in uh, British um, currency because we didn't have our own currency back then. Um, he also bought the lot across the street at the northwest corner and built the stone stable there. Taylor's moved in when the Durham lease expired in 1763 and lived there approximately five years. In 1765, they bought a house nearby on Northampton Street for their son James and conveyed it to him for five shillings and their natural love and affection. In Eastern, Taylor soon became involved in public affairs. He took an active role in the building of the new courthouse and, according to some accounts, supervised its construction. Uh, Taylor was a justice of the peace in Bucks County from 1757 to 1763. And then it's going to go on with him going um, into more politics. Um, in March 1767, Taylor purchased a 331-acre tract known as the Manor of Talktown, located approximately 15 miles east of, west of Easton, where he built an impressive two-story Georgian stone house on a bluff overlooking the Lehigh River. He hired carpenters from Philadelphia to erect the home in 1768. Um, tragically, his wife Anne died that year. It is not known where she was buried, among the possibilities suggested by historians are the new property in Easton and the Gallows Hill Cemetery. So um, he leased most of his property out. He moved in with his son. Blah, 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 blah. She's already passed. And they only have the one son. Um, and it just says everything about his, uh, you know, life in the committees and signing the Declaration of Independence. Um, so, George Taylor died in February 1781. His estate included two slaves, Tom, who was sold for 280 bushels of wheat, and crippled Sam, who fetched one horse and three cows. A 24 eight-day clock and a walnut case vase. Well, I don't care what the value of that. Um, after bequest to his uh, ex execution, executors and housekeeper, he left in his will, dated January 1781, half of his estate went to his five grandchildren um, because his son had died. So um, pretty much he was one of the more ordinary people. You know, he wasn't the, the great lawyer that we're going to be talking about. He wasn't, you know, um, the... the um, doctor who wrote the first chemistry book. 
And that's just one of the things that we keep bringing up, how everybody was so different and so diverse, air fingers. We've always been diverse. We've always been different. But we've always had something in common, and that was our love of liberty, freedom, and God. And we're diverse, more diverse than we've ever been, and we are horrible right now. You know, it just, it, this is, your thing is a slavery, my thing is that. Mm. They're screaming for diversity. We have admit, we've always been diverse, you idiots. And right now, we're in our, for, the worst way, the worst the country could ever, ever be. <sighs> All right. So that was the Taylors. Um, now, you want to do something on the Wilsons? We're going to do the Wilsons, and we were going to split it, because you have an article about the Wilsons, and I do too. Yes. Okay. Yes. So let's start with your Wilson one, and then we'll, I'll get into mine. Okay. Now, which one do you have? I mean, I've Hold got the, the whole thing here. Okay, I got to look. <laughs> I, the Women I, History Blog. Do you have a Women History Blog on yes, Wilson? Okay. I do. But I also have the article on the Huguenots, which if you wanted to talk about, I could do that. Okay, you could do that briefly because I do want to get into the um, what Wilson wrote about uh, the British rule, okay, and you're going to be yeah. doing that as well. So I'm getting okay. up the other one. Okay, I'll get up the Huguenots. I'll put these other people to bed here. Yeah, put them away. <laughs> I don't want to get confused again. I know. You don't have to tell me. I know, there's so many of them. Okay. Uh oh. Oh, that's my call waiting. Never mind. It made a funny noise. Okay. You want me to do the Huguenots first? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, wait a minute. But before you go on, the reason we're doing the Huguenots is because um uh well hold on Uh, James Wilson's wife was a really huge I mean a big deal descendant of the Huguenots (laughs) I mean a nobleman and everything. (laughs) Oh yes, yes. She has quite the ancestry. She Um, did. Yeah. And and it's a wonderful, um, I, I learned a lot more about it just from, you know, researching more. I mean, I, I knew what a Huguenot was. I just didn't know that, you know, the history of behind. Oh, my goodness. Um, and this is from the uh, Huguenot Society of Great Britain and Ireland. And it's the, uh, the Huguenot history. Um, they were, uh, it was the name given in the 16th century to Protestants in France, particularly by their enemies. The impact of the Protestant Reformation was felt throughout Europe in the early 16th century. Its greatest protagonists were the German Martin Luther and the Frenchman Jean Calvin. In France, Calvinism penetrated all ranks of society, especially those of the literate craftsmen in the towns and of the nobility. There were eight civil wars in France between 1562 and 1598, known as the Wars of Religion. The charter of Edward VI 
enabled the first French Protestant church to be set up in England. Descended from this church is the one in Soho Square, London. In 1589, the Protestant Henri de Bourbon, King of Navarre, inherited the French throne after the death of his three Valois cousins, sons of Catherine de Medici. Civil war continued, so in 1593, in the spirit of Paris is worth a mass, Henri converted to Catholicism. Five years later, the Civil Wars ended, and Henri issued the Edict of Nantes, which gave the Huguenots, his former co-religionists and comrades in arms, considerable privileges, including widespread religious liberty. Over time, Huguenots became loyal subjects of the French crown. However, their position became increasingly insecure as King Louis XIV, grandson of Henri IV, listened more and more to those who advised him that the existence of the sizable religious minority was a threat to the absolute authority of the monarch. Gradually, the Huguenots' privileges were eroded. In the 1680s, Protestants in certain parts of France were deliberately terrorized by the billeting of unruly troops in their homes, the Dragonade. Finally, in 1685, Louis revoked the Edict of Nantes while exiling all Protestant pastors and at the same time forbidding the laity to leave France. To the considerable surprise of the government, many did leave, often at great risk themselves. Men who were caught, if not executed, were sent as galley slaves to the French fleet in the Mediterranean. Women were imprisoned and their children sent to convents. About 200,000 Huguenots, left France, settling in non-Catholic Europe, the Netherlands, Germany, especially Prussia, Switzerland, Scandinavia, and even as far as Russia, where Huguenot craftsmen could find customers at the court of the Tsars. The Dutch East Indian India Company sent a few hundred to the Cape to develop the vineyards in southern Africa. About 50,000 came to England, perhaps about 10,000 moving on to Ireland. So there are many inhabitants of these islands who have Huguenot blood in their veins, whether or not they still bear one of the hundreds of French names of those who took refuge here, thus bringing the word refugee into the English language. Because of, of the political climate at the time, a Britain strongly suspicious of the aim of Louis XIV's France, and in fact about to begin a series of war to curb these ambitions, the Huguenots were on the whole welcome here. And they have a map that indicates the main routes used by the refugees. Um, America, 10,000. However, as the pamphlet literature of the time shows, they cannot entirely escape the accusations leveled at immigrants from time immemorial that their presence threatened jobs, standards of houses, housing, public order, morality, and hygiene, and even that they ate strange foods. For at least half a century, the Huguenots remained a recognizable minority, making their presence felt in baking, commerce, industry, the book trade, the arts, and the army, on the stage and in teaching. Although many retained their Calvinist organization and worship, treated more generously by government than homegrown nonconformity, by about 1760 they had ceased to stand out as foreign, even following the path of Anglican conformity and religion which some had taken from the very beginning. And in another article I read about the Huguenots, it, it mentioned that they were welcomed, even though they were, you know, foreign to some of the countries they went to, which, you know, you have to remember that people didn't travel as extensively as they do now. So someone from another country and another culture, you know, was 
foreign in the literal sense of the word, um, but because of their high education and craftsmanship, they were welcomed to the country because they could produce uh, very, you know, uh, goods of quality and they were good businessmen, they were educated, and, you know, they they gave, uh, you know, they, they were, it was a positive addition to the, to the community. And you can take that as you will. So that was the Huguenot. And there's a lot more to learn. It's a really neat, uh, neat um, website. And then there's other good websites, too, um, that explain more about them. So if you're interested in that, that's where you can start. Well, and the differences between what we always wanted well-educated, you know, productive people to come and settle this land. We never asked for anybody that was illiterate, poor, dirty, disease-ridden. And as, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be looking this up because Brian keeps bringing it up on our radio show. Britain and the rest of Europe, when we were a young country, tried to, sell, tried to send all their trash here. Mm-hmm. And the founding fathers said, hell no, and turned the damn ships around by force with the Navy, by the way. Yes. Yeah, they were going to send their, um, well, they were very good at that, too. Look at Australia. Yep. Yeah, and look at how Australia and the colonies turned around on both uh, Britain and showed them what to. Yep. I think they would have learned. <laughs> They're very arrogant. That is yeah, like, like most of the people in this country have turned out to be. I know. it. They think they, you know... It's amazing to me how, you know, how long we fought to to take on our own ways. And it's like, how do they just want to go back to a monarchy and a parliament? No, 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 no. It's not working out so well for England, in case anybody noticed. That's because we don't we lost our history, Deb, and that's why you and I are doing the show. Yes, exactly. And hopefully one day your little baby boys will listen to it. Yeah. All well, right. I hear you talking about it all the time anyway, so <laughs> they get very upset when I turn on C SPAN though. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the cartoons that are out there right now aren't that swift either. Oh, my God. No. Anyways, okay. Okay. So, we're going back to the Wilsons, and Rachel Bird was born, which is uh, James Wilson's wife, was born in 1750, the youngest daughter of William Bird of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, proprietor of the fine country seat and ironwork on the Scully Kill River known as Birdsboro. So her mother, Brigetta, Brigetta Hullbird, Hullingbird, Rachel, through her mother, Brigetta Hullingbird, Rachel was a descendant of the Marquise Jean, Jean Paul Frederic de Hullingus, <laughs> a Huguenot. <laughs> a Huguenot, huh? 
That's quite a name. I know, Humming Hughes. A Huguenot nobleman attached to the court of Henry of Navarre. Rachel's brother, Mark Bird, married, married Mary Roth, the sister of George Roth, a future signer of the Declaration of Independence. Again, showing how everybody was intertwined. James Wilson was born on September 14, 1742, in Coscarado, Scotland, the son of William Wilson and Alessian Lansdale Wilson. That's, that's Allison. 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 His father was a respectable farmer living a healthy life but a hard one. Methods of husbandry were crude and there was little variety of produce. Even fertile soil was not constituted to yield lavish crops and after the rent had been met, there could be but little to lay by. Dwellings were small and bare, punishings were meager and rude. Nevertheless, a boy with intelligence and grit could find opportunity to furnish his mind and train his faculties. Okay, again, different, he's poor, she's rich. Okay, this is like a Cinderella story. Mm. But he, that, you could do anything in this, in this country. If you set your mind to it, you could be anything. But that was before the government got involved. Well, and this was also in Scotland, which even gives it more credence because the, the British government has so turned Scotland into, you know, one big tenant firm that, like it says, after the rent had been met, there was little to lay by. I mean, they had the, the, the uh, Bruce, you know, the, the Bruce, the aristocrats, come in and, and buy up the land. They gave them property and they had these little farmer people. They were tenants. They didn't own the land. And, they, you know, the king would go, ooh, I have a war, you know, or I just fought a war. So I need the taxes raised. And who, who, who you know, the, 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 the baron or the, the Bruce didn't pay for it. It was the, the tenant farmer. Yeah, uh, serfs, and uh, for some reason, our country wants us to keep going on the road to serfdom. Unbelievable. I know. How soon you forget. At the age of 15, James earned a scholarship to the United College of St. Salvador and St. Leonard at the University of St. Andrews. While his studies there were centered primarily on preparing him for life in the church, Later writings reveal that he entertained much broader interests, including classical governments and philosophy. He received a degree from St. Andrews in 1762. Wilson then studied briefly at the universities Edinburgh and Glasgow. He attended a surprising number of schools and never attained a degree. In 1765, Wilson embarked on his journey across the Atlantic. He arrived in New York in the midst of the controversy over the Stamp Act, which levied attacks on all documents involved in the internal commerce and business of the colonies. This was by far, ladies and gentlemen, the most cruel thing you could do at that time. They didn't have computers. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, uh, our government's pretty, being pretty cruel to us because uh, you need to look at your uh, internet bill and you need to look at your cell phone bill. The amount of taxes that are on it is just as bad as the Stamp Act. Yeah, anything that's labeled a fee, that's a tax. Yes, it is. 
Moving to Philadelphia, Wilson taught Latin at the College of Philadelphia, a school only recently founded with the help of Benjamin Franklin, and which was to become the University of Pennsylvania. The trustees there were impressed with his classical scholarship and the all-around quality of the educational attainment. After only a few months, Wilson found an opening as a student of the law in the office of John Dickinson. And John Dickinson was one of the people that did not sign the Declaration of Independence. Um, a leading lawyer and politician who would later play an important part in opposing the Declaration of Independence. Applying himself wholeheartedly to the study of law, Wilson was admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar. Notice, he didn't have to get a license. Well, he got a license, I guess, as a lawyer. They all did. But, I mean, he didn't have to have this, like, eight-year degree and do all these humanities and all this other crap that our kids have to do. And even I had to do to get my bachelor's degree in nursing. It was ridiculous. Um, it's just going to say about more of his... Um, uh, more of his education. But this is important. On Bar of Capital, Wilson also began to speculate in land, which became a lifelong fascination. He had bought a small farm near Carlsley and dabbled in land speculation in New York and Pennsylvania. By the way, um, speculation is just like day trading now. And it was really frowned upon. Um, back in the day. You were, you might as well be a crook. Um, okay, so let's see. When he was only 26 years old, his thoughts on the developing struggle with Great Britain were years ahead of those of most of his contemporaries. The fact that it was first conceived in 1768 is testimony to Wilson's maturity of mind. Like Wilson, who was educated in an environment familiar with the Scottish entitlement, uh, enlightenment, a number of the most influential founding fathers had also been exposed to these ideas of Scottish origin, including Thomas Jefferson, Jean Satter, Richard Henry Lee, and Alexander Hamilton, which we can't stand. Um, I'm not so sure it was the Scottish enlightenment. It was, certainly was the enlightenment. You've got to take these things with a grain of salt and look them up. Um, a lot of where people say our founding fathers got their uh, influence is wrong, especially the pointy-tailed professors spouting away, oh, this is where Thomas Jefferson got this. Thomas Jefferson wasn't even around. And he, gave, he went all over, the, all over Europe getting all kinds of books and all kinds of philosophy and sending it to James Madison, pointy-tailed professor. All right. Um, let me just scroll down, Deb, because I want to see, because they get, they get into his essay um, right away, but I want to get a little bit more into their, her, if I can find it. Okay. Um, okay, so he moved to the Scotch-Irish uh, Scotch -Irish settlement of Carlsley. He spe specialized in land law and built up a broad clientele in Cumberland County and seven neighboring counties. His office was very successful, and he earned a small fortune in a few short years. Rachel Byrd married James Wilson on November 11, 1770. They had six children. Uh, let's see. They were going to say that he was, you know, elected to the Continental Congress. He was well-liked. Um, he debated Richard Henry Reeves' uh, resolution for independence. Um, 
And then on July 2nd, like we said before, this is, the, and that's what Deb said earlier, the, a bunch of them got together and they said, okay, this is, we're going to find the declaration, this is going to be the Declaration of Independence after the committee of five that went over Thomas Jefferson's first draft, because he did not. Did we lose you? Uh-oh. I think we lost her. Oh, she might have gotten kicked off. So, anyways, I'll uh, finish up the the uh, essay here. Um, so they were uh, divided on the issue of independence, Pennsylvania especially, and Wilson refused to vote against the will of his constituents in Cumberland County. Um, And in Pennsylvania, many members of the Congress felt that Wilson was hypocritical to have argued so forcefully and so long for independence only to vote against it when the occasion came. With the support of three other members who were sympathetic to his position, Wilson managed to delay the vote for independence for three weeks so that he could consult with people back home. Um, and then uh, uh, he did sign on July 2nd. And uh, following the signing of the Declaration, Pennsylvania and other states began writing state constitutions. Wilson was opposed to the Pennsylvania Constitution because it called for a unicameral, one legislative body. He believed that it lacked a system of checks and balances that would lead to mob rule. His fellow delegates, believing that he abandoned the patriot cause for a more conservative position, forced his removal from Congress in 77. So he went back to practicing law in Maryland, and then he moved his family to Philadelphia, where he began to circulate among conservative groups and increase his business interests. Um, let's see. And he did other things. And as the war progressed, many economic hardships were encountered. And uh, the uh, 79 the Philadelphia militia ordered that two crises in the city be fixed because of the craziness of the continental currency being uh, worthless and everything. So anyway. Um, Deb? Yeah, you're back. Deb? Yes? Were you holding the, carrying, the, carrying the water for me? Because I just got kicked off the phone bridge. Well, we figured you had. So um, I, I've been reading about the, the signing of the declaration and then the that thing, that kind of stuff. So we're down to um, uh, the mob riots in 79. Yeah, this is really important. I can't believe they did this to them. Um, so mob riots occurred in Philadelphia in 1779 against profiteers, loyalists, and their sympathizers. Learning that they would be targets, Wilson and 35 supporters barricaded themselves in Wilson's home. On October 4, 1779, militia men and radical constitutionalists, there's no such thing as a radical constitutionalist, came to tar and feather Wilson and his guests and ride them out of town. One of the radicals, well, I guess you could call them radicals if you were British, Philadelphia artist Charles Wilson Peel made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade the mob to, to disperse. 
but they pushed him to break down the doors of Wilson's home, which the citizens dubbed Fort Wilson. Gunshots were fired, and several people on both sides were killed, and many were injured. Only the arrival of the city soldiers prevented the attack from succeeding, and Wilson and his friends were escorted to safety. Shock of the situation, cooled sentiments, and all involved were pardoned and released. So Rachel Bird, his wife, died in 1786, and let's see where he died. And then we need to get, um, and a good thing too is James Wilson was only one was one of only six founding fathers who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, blah, 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 blah. I I can't see where he died. Okay, but this just goes on to okay. He died suddenly on August twenty first, seventeen ninety eight, of a stroke at the age of fifty five at James Everdell's home in Eden, in Edenson, North Carolina. Wilson was buried nearby at Haines Plantation, so he died rather young, and his wife died even younger than him. But one of the things that we are going to get to, and you're just going to have enough time to, to read the, the part I told you, he titled the study Considerations on the Nature and Effect of the Legislative Authority of the British Parliament which will become an important resource as the colonies move toward independence. Um, and it was circulated widely in England and America, and Deb has that. Yeah, and this is uh, from the Constitution Society, and it has the whole pamphlet, which is quite long. Uh, so if you want to go over to the Constitution Society and look up... Um, James Wilson's uh, considerations on the nature and extent of the legislative authority of the British Parliament. They were really good for long titles back then, too. Okay, one, two, three, four. I'm reading the fifth paragraph. Um, and it, you, you need to read the beginning, too, because it, it's really amazing how similar what he writes about similar to what's happening today, which is sad. Tragic should be, but the founders knew that it might have been. Anyway, he writes, those who allege that the parliament, is that right? Yes, those who allege, yes, that the parliament of Great Britain has power to make laws binding the American colonies reason in the following manner, that there is and must be in every state a supreme, irresistible, absolute, uncontrolled authority in which the jura sumai imperi, or the rights of sovereignty, reside, that this supreme power is, by the Constitution of Great Britain, vested in the king, lords, and commons, that, therefore, the acts of the king, lords, and commons, or, in other words, acts of parliament, have by the British Constitution a binding force on the American colonies they composing a part of the British Empire. Um, and it goes into uh, why he thinks, and this was written really based on three, he used three court cases um, to make his case. And uh, you can find this, uh, it's in a book form now, over at Amazon, you can you can get that if you want to go further in studying. Okay, now I have to find um, 
Okay, let me do three, four, five, six. Okay, let's see. This is, I can't find it. Oh, down here. Okay. Thus is the freedom of elections secured from the servility, the ignorance, and the corruption of the electors, and from the interposition of officers depending immediately upon the crown. But this is not all. Provisions equally salutary have been made concerning the qualifications of those who shall be elected. All imaginable care has been taken that the commons of Great Britain may be neither awed nor allured nor deceived in any nomination inconsistent with their liberties. Um, and, and you really have to go back to, let's see, there's the, the dictionary of 1832, which is, I think, the closest one that you can find online, to look up these words because they don't necessarily have the same meaning today. So to really understand what they they were writing about, it's good to know how they were using the words with their definitions versus today's definitions. It's like it's much better to... Uh, read history through the context of the period instead of the perspective of the 21st century because a lot has changed. So this is this is this essay and it's really wonderful. Um, and it goes on. I like this what this paragraph too. It has been adopted as a general maxim that the crown will take advantage of every opportunity of extending its prerogative in opposition to the privileges of the people, that it is the interest of those who have pensions or offices at will from the crown to concur in all its measures that mankind in general will prefer their private interests to the good of their country, and that consequently those who enjoy such pensions or offices are unfit to represent a free nation and to have the care of their liberties committed to their hands. All such officers or pensioners are declared incapable of being elected members of the House of Commons. So that's what they were saying, but that does not necessarily mean that's what's going to happen. Um, uh, I mean, he and he goes on and on and on. Oh my goodness, it's very long and, and it's well thought out. I have to say. Um, and he talks about preserving the limitations of um, the the government, the the crown. Um, it says the Constitution of Great Britain is that of limited monarchy, and in all limited monarchies, the power of preserving the limitations must be placed somewhere. Uh, and, and that would be the um, the power of preserving the limitations of monarchy for the purpose of the liberty were not more properly placed in the barons, domineering and turbulent. They oppressed their vassals and treated them as slaves. And um, that's what led to the Magna Carta, which is what basically the, the uh, monarchy in Britain had to, you know, go by. For centuries, so it's uh, let's see what time is it. Well, we're getting down there. Um, it says, "Can the Americans who are descended from British ancestors and inherit all their rights be blamed 
can they be blamed by their brethren in Britain for claiming still to enjoy those rights? But can they enjoy them if they are bound by the acts of a British parliament? Upon what principle does the British parliament found their power? Is it founded on the prerogative of the king? His prerogative does not extend to make laws to bind any of his subjects. Does it reside in the House of the Lords? The peers are a collective and not a representative body. If it resides anywhere, then it must reside in the House of Commons. And he goes on about the Americans. And and he also talks about Jamaican colonies. That's one of the court cases that he brought up. Um, Let's get down to the... Oh, the end, which... um, There is a dependence which they have acknowledged hitherto, which they acknowledge now, and which, if it is reasonable to judge of the future of the past and present, they will continue to acknowledge hereafter. It is not a dependence like that contended for on Parliament, slavish and unaccountable, or accounted for only by principles that are false and inapplicable. It is a dependence founded upon the principles of reason, of liberty, and of law. The colonists ought to be dependent on the king because they have hitherto enjoyed and still continue to enjoy his protection. Allegiance is the faith and obedience which every subject owes to his prince. Disobedience is founded on the protection derived from the government. The protection and allegiance are the reciprocal bonds which connect the prince and his subject. Every subject, as so soon as he is born, is under the royal protection and is entitled to all the advantages arising from it. He he therefore owes obedience to that royal power from which the protection which he enjoys is derived. And remember, this is 1768. And this is how they thought. I mean, this is is the colonists' thought um, being, you know, the colonies of Britain. This was their king. And and this is is why America was so freaking... uh, uh, um, amazing because here the first country without a king or a dictator or you know a tribal leader it was a king with government first time in history now they want to you know kind of get it back to the well the Bolsheviks and the elite you know they're kind of in in competition to see who gets to uh, who gets to control all of us. But anyways, it's a, it's a really wonderful essay um, just to read it because there's a lot of you know you could take a month and go uh, you know paragraph by paragraph or section by section because he really hits on you know and and that's one thing that this would be a, a really good um, civics. Uh, project to for our kids to do, they would never do this. No, oh God, no, because it talks about liberty, and of course, our schools right now are just—they're not so much into liberty these days, and the, the you know the rights of man. They're so worried about gender pronouns, and flags, and Halloween. Well. Anyway, that brings us almost to the end of the show, and I want to give you a couple minutes to do your spiel. And we've got 10 minutes left. So let me do my spiel first. And my spiel is that we are weaponizing knowledge. They're weaponizing words. We're weaponizing knowledge. It's time for you to get history lesson 
talk to your kids, talk to your neighbor, talk to your coworkers, talk to your family. I don't care. We are at war. And we are not winning. So, in order to get knowledge, go to uncooperativeradio.com. Uncooperativeradio.com. There, you can download Uncooperative Radio, which is what I do with my husband, Brian. This show, The Women of the Revolution, and Patriots Pub. Patriots Pub is with complete history. It is a rendition of the notes of, of Madison's notes on the Continental Congress of 1787, day by day by day. So go to uncooperativeradio.com, com, and get an education. Patriots Pub, you have to listen from the first episode or you will lose contact. It's a linear project done by three self-taught scholars, so they know what the heck they're talking about, unlike all these other so-called scholars, economists, talking heads who are clueless. And with that, Deb, you got seven minutes to take us out. Alrighty. Well, as uh, always, I speak about the military and the veterans because um, my daughter is a staff sergeant in the United States Army. Um, it, She's married to a retired military police dog handler. So, I, yeah, kind of had a special place in my heart for military anyways. And we are, uh, we've had some interesting um, noises coming from D.C. in the military about what's going to happen. So do please pray for our kids in uniform that have been sent uh, into the hell holes that they have to go to. And pray for the families of the ones who don't come home all safe and sound. Keep on your uh, Congress critters about our veterans. Make sure they Keep after the VA. My estimation is you just tear it down and start all over again, but, you know, that's me. And if you do have a local VA uh, hospital, um, go visit. Go visit the, the, the uh, veterans there. Ask them how it's going. You know, it, are they happy with their care? Um, go into the different... Uh, go into the different sections because they also, you know, they have the the nursing home section, they have the homeless section, and as well as the, you know, take care of picnic section. Um, And see how things are going there. If they have any complaints, then make some noise. You know, if, if it's sketchy or if you hear that, it takes an awful long time for them to get an appointment and that one of their friends died waiting for it, which happens, sadly. Make some noise. Call your Congress critters. Oh, hell, go see the administrator of the hospital. Let them know that you're watching. Um, 
And if you find something that really disturbs you, you can also call the uh, VFW, the American Legion, and Rolling Thunder because, uh, well, when I was the liaison for Rolling Thunder, we had monthly meetings at the at the VA hospital near us. And we went in and we asked questions and we listened to doctors telling us, and, you know, the administrator talking to us or, or her spokesperson that she was not or he was not available. Um, that's when you, you can, you know, these people are very serious about our veterans and they are always um, looking to, to make sure that care is as it should be. So, you know, if you have a local rolling thunder, VFW, American Legion, they are the ones, uh, or, or uh, DAV, disabled vets, um, DAV, uh, they, they also were there. Uh, I mean, it's just, we can't let our veterans fall through the cracks of bureaucracy, which too many have. Uh, and our young kids, I mean, I don't know if you've ever um, seen an application for VA benefits, but my God, a 19-year-old fresh from the, the combat zone comes back and has to read all, I mean, I hardly understood it, and I've read a lot of contracts and things, and it's a maze of nonsense. So, you know, if there's anything you can do to help these people out, by all means, feel free. They love volunteers. Um, yeah, the VA hospital, too, most usually have volunteer programs, and you'll meet a bunch of great people. And they got wonderful stories to tell. So, in that, as I always say, pray for our kids in uniform, and pray for uh, wisdom for our leadership. And uh, y'all stay safe out there. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week, too. Same time, same place. And um, have a safe week. And keep the powder dry. Take care. God bless you. God bless America. And Loki, we miss you as you know. Good night, everybody. See you next week.